<sighs> well, how's this thing supposed to start? Uh, my name's Aaron. Some of y'all might know me by Gimme, and uh, well, some of y'all may not know me at all, but I think we all need to know these books very intimately, so I think it's time for you to check your shelf. guys um fuck man welcome to the first episode of check yourself uh where i'm encouraging all you weirdos to go check yourselves uh i want you to go see if you have some of these books or maybe you've just got something sitting there dusty that you've been meaning to read for a couple months a couple years but i don't know how this is gonna go i uh I've been meaning to read more myself, and this is a way to kind of hold myself accountable, so we're going to make it fun. We're going to keep it interesting. Um, I hope to uh, maybe have a couple of you guys question your own ideals and, and reasons why you thought these books were banned, and maybe it'll challenge some of your belief systems along the way, but no matter what happens, man, we're going to... Uh, we're gonna have fun with it. We're gonna be sipping on some seltzers. We're gonna be drinking cocktails. Uh, you know, if they fit the, the theme of a book, we might do some special drinks or foods. Uh, we'll be eating edibles and smoking joints and taking dabs along the way. Uh, maybe specific books. We might even drop a little LSD or take some mushrooms. Uh, I don't know if I'll be able to read under those conditions, but I'm certainly willing to try. So, for the first episode, I took a little poll on the people who decided to follow the Facebook group straight away. I just kind of invited a couple of my closest friends and, and family members and stuff like that. So, And we voted on a book called Be Here Now um, by Baba Ram Das, formerly known as Dr. Richard Alpert. Um, he was a tenured professor at Harvard, maybe Yale. I don't exactly remember. It's been a while since I've read this, but he was a tenured professor in the 50s and 60s. And, um, man, he had it all. He had a yacht, multiple houses, you know, took vacations. He might have owned a jet. I can't remember. But uh, it's kind of a story about uh, this man's journey. Um up the mountaintop realizing it was unfulfilling and then he kind of went off on his own to drop a bunch of LSD with uh, the creator actually Albert Hoffman was involved in this book a little bit and Timothy Leary and some of the other famous like uh, trip nerds and like the people who were studying this stuff at the time that it was created um, so he had a basically just this fucking crazy idea that he was going to travel to India without knowing anybody without doing any real research. He just kind of took a whole bunch of acid over there and uh, hoped for the best. You know, he, uh, I don't know, got a, got a 
whatever fate is, you know, whatever whatever faith is. Like it's something spoke to him and whatever it was was the right choice for him because he wound up turning it into a very fulfilling career as a as a guru and a speaker and a teacher and um, somebody who actually helped really change my life for the better, you know, introduced me to a uh, an alternative kind of anarchist punk take into Buddhism and Eastern religions and because of that, you know, I started studying a lot of, of, of Buddhism and Hinduism and, you know, Islam and because of that, uh, it made me, you know, much more open-minded and free-thinking and liberated and, you know, unafraid of changing my beliefs or or being presented with information that might challenge things that I once thought was true because nothing's true. Um, you know, it's all it's all hidden behind a little layer of illusion and this book kind of goes into what that sort of means and um, what this one's meant. I, I don't know. It's just an interesting fucking tale of like he was he was this dude was in all intents and purposes in all intents and purposes not intensive purposes intents and purposes um I mean he had it all he had fucking he was doing dinner parties with elites he was you know tenure I don't know if you guys know what that means but he was basically set for life at that point um giving lectures in academia in front of you know full lecture halls etc etc but I don't know just a very detailed very graphic detailed uh, look at this man's uh, life and experience and um, yeah well, uh, well we're gonna dive into this and I think we're gonna um, get video going here soon uh, hopefully next week um, if not I'll make sure that we have uh, pictures and, and stuff of some of this book because there once it gets into the meat of it there's a lot of illustrations um, that he was drawing while he was out writing this book um, and it all takes place in the 60s, early 60s, I believe. So, you know, before cell phones, before computers, really. I mean, obviously there were computers, but, you know, you know what I'm trying to say. Anyway, check your shelf. Episode one, Be Here Now by Baba Ram Das. So, I've got my notepad here and I've got my book ready to be cracked I've got my drinks <clears throat> available I've got a, a dab sitting here ready and I just realized I don't really have a fucking plan and that's kind of indicative of what this book is going to bring I think so it's kind of a, a perfect way to get this thing started. We're going to figure out what's going to work and what's not to a book that I'm already reading anyways. And I've read this book four or five times. And every time I read this book, I give it away to somebody who I think needs to read it. Um, and after I read this one, I intend on uh, giving this book to my mom. And I don't know if she's going to read it. I, I doubt that she will. Um, maybe she'll listen to the podcast, so that'll be enough. But um, I think being alone in your head, reading this book and kind of conceptualizing the pictures and looking at it in your own way is a lot of fun. And it's, 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 it's a rewarding experience in and of itself. So um, 
if this book interests you and this podcast interests you, I highly suggest uh, you go pick up a copy. This is my sixth copy of the book, and uh, I haven't read it in a couple years. Um, I wanted to try to read it once a year, but life happens, and you can't be a dirty hippie forever, I guess. But So it was kind of just as I was getting ready to click play after reading the kind of the intro of episode one, I decided I would kind of start every episode with a sort of summary of the book. I want this to be kind of an improvisational, um, verbatim, like I want to read the book together. Like I want this to kind of be a book club, right? So um, I'm going to give a little bit of a summary just so everybody knows what they're getting into. Um, and I don't want to alienate anybody, so I want to keep it interesting. I want you to tune into me more so than the books, because if you don't like this book, it would suck to lose you for 10 or 15 episodes, you know? So, the first episode of the saga. With a summary. I think that's fucking, I think that makes sense. So Be Here Now was written in 1971. Uh, it's kind of a spiritual take on uh, the Westerner's Guide to India and what uh, an American might think about Hinduism, Buddhism, and just uh, the whole mysticism that comes with Eastern religion. Uh, the first book was written in 1970, and when I talk about like the meat of the book um, a little bit later, um, that's what I'm talking about. So this was the first thing that he wrote, but they, the, uh, the publishers encouraged him to kind of write a sort of prelude and an epilogue and all this stuff. <clears throat> so the full book was published in 1971, um, and it's got four sections. Uh, the first section is called The Journey, The Transformation from Richard Albert to Baba Ramdas. Uh, the second part is called From Bindu to Ohas. Uh, the third part is called A Cookbook for Sacred Life. And the final part is called Painted Cakes Do Not, Painted Cakes Do Not Satisfy Hunger. Uh, the first section, uh, The Journey, is just kind of a, a short autobiography about his success as a psychologist, um, some of the research that he did with Timothy Leary at Harvard, and the anxiety that he felt when the research didn't really resolve his spiritual questions. Um, he kind of goes into his um, journey to India a little bit and the relationships that he found um, once he landed, um, and he... Uh, while he was there, he wrote uh, the second section of this book, which is uh, the three-fourths, uh, two-thirds of the book. It's a large section of the book, um, and it's just kind of a free-form collection of, like, reflections and, and some illustrations that he had um, while he was probably tripping fucking crazy balls at, in the middle of the mountains in India. <clears throat> um, the narrative flow is kind of like a continuous free, free flow, freestyle um, sort of thing, so, like, it's kind of really just trying to like tap into some sort of like deeply subconscious thing that that's probably I don't know I don't know what he's trying to do but some some of the stuff he's like he's fucking rambling like a madman so keep in mind that a lot of the stuff is going to be metaphorical and allegorical and metaphysical and it's a lot of hubbub so um but I think it'll be all right I'll hold your hand uh, I'll tell you what I think about what he's trying to say and we'll, we'll kind of decipher it along the way I think you'll be okay uh, the third section is kind of the manual. Like, if you want to, like, kind of get on this path to even leading others to, to, to this sort of path, this is uh, what the third path is going to be about. It's going to have a bunch of techniques for meditation and yoga and diet, um, things like that, and then a bunch of also really powerful quotes from really respected people. 
Uh, and then the last section is just kind of a list of books and texts. Um, they're kind of divided into books to hang out with, books to visit every now and then, and books it's useful to have met. Um, so, uh, for example, this is one of the books I hang out with. Uh, I intend to hang out with him for a long time. Um, so, uh, that's a short summary. Uh, we're going to go ahead and dive right into it. Um, do I give a... Is that whack? Ah, the pages of the book. Do I give a deep... Ah, the deep sniff of the spine? Shit's so fucking... Shit's so whack. So, I don't know. We'll probably go through every page, I imagine. Page number one, uh, kind of just an illustration of him with a very intricate bendy on his forehead. Um, nice full white beard, bald head, big ears. Uh, big nose. This is uh, Maharaji. This is not Baba Ramdas. But uh, looks very, very stoned, wrapped up in a blanket, looking cozy. And then we got the illustration that's on the front cover of the book. This is made in love for love. No, this is boring, right? Why do I read the publication shit? Like, why do I just jump right into the shit, right? Fucking Llama Foundation, 1971. Blah, blah, blah. New York, New York. <coughs> Suck my dick, New York. The journey, the transformation. Namaste. Our story. There are three stages in this journey that I have been on. The first... The social science stage, the second, the psychedelic stage, and the third, the yogi stage. They are summating. That is, each is contributing to the next. It's like the unfolding of a lotus flower. Now, as I look back, I realize many of the experiences that made little sense to me at the time they occurred were prerequisites. That's, that, did I just sound like Bugs Bunny right there? Um, they occurred to me were prerequisites for what was to come later. I want to share with you the parts of the internal journey that never get written up in the mass media. I'm not interested in the political parts of this story. I'm not interested in what you read in the Saturday evening post about LSD. This is the story of what goes on inside a human being who is undergoing all of these experiences. Success. In 1961, the beginning of March, I was at perhaps the highest point of my academic career. I had just returned from being a visiting professor at the University of California at Berkeley. I had been assured of a permanent post that was being held for me at Harvard, if I got my publications in order. I held appointments in four departments at Harvard, the Social Relations Department, the Psychology Department, the Graduate School of Education, and the Health Service, where I was a therapist. I had research contracts with Yale and Stanford. In a worldly sense, I was making a great income and I was a collector of possessions. I had an apartment in Cambridge that was filled with antiques, and I gave a very charming dinner party. I had a Mercedes-Benz sedan and a Triumph 500cc motorcycle and a Cessna 172 airplane, and an MG sports car, and a sailboat, and a bicycle. I vacationed in the Caribbean, where I did scuba diving. I was living the way a successful bachelor professor is supposed to live in the American world. 
Did I just did I just really skip two pages? What the what the heck? Is there a page missing? What the heck going on? <clears throat> I was living the way a successful bachelor professor is supposed to live in the American world of he who makes it. See, he just writes weird. Like, come on now. That don't flow, bruh. Um, I wasn't a genuine scholar, but I had gone through the whole academic trip. I had gotten my PhD. I was writing books. I had research contracts. I taught courses in human motivation, Freudian theory, child development. But what all this boils down to is that I was just a really very good game player. My lecture notes were the ideas of other men, subtly presented, and my research was all within the zeitgeist. All that which one was supposed to research about. In 1955, I had started doing therapy, and my first therapy patient had turned me on to pot. I had not smoked regularly after that, but only sporadically, and I was still quite a heavy drinker. Hold up. That's the first mention of cannabis we've had on this episode. That means it's time for the daily dab. What you got to say, Snoop Dogg? Well, to be honest, <clears throat> I don't know how this is going to sound. I don't know if it's going to be good, it's going to be, I might cough for an hour, but we're going to do a little cold temp, a cold start dab real quick, we got a small one loaded up. And we'll melt it. Apparently, my new banger whistles. I don't know what the fuck that's about, but... Let's get back to this goddamn book. Appreciate you, Snoop, Dre. Love y'all. Anyway, I thoroughly apologize for that. Um, seemed like a good, like a good, uh, a good way to dictate what time it is to smoke during the podcast. I don't want to start the episode with it. I don't want to get flagged or whatever the hell. You know, I don't know how this shit actually works. This is new to me, but I don't know. If the book mentions cannabis, maybe I'll smoke. Seems like a good trigger I don't know what's the word anyway so let's start this paragraph over in 1955 I had started doing therapy and my first therapy patient had turned me on to pot I had not smoked regularly after that but only sporadically and I was still quite a heavy drinker but this first patient had friends and they had friends and all of them became my patients I became a hip therapist for the hip community at Stanford when I'd go to parties, they'd all say, Here comes the shrink. And I would sit in the corner looking superior. In addition, I had spent five years in psychoanalysis at a cool investment of something like $26,000. And this was in the 60s, mind you, so that was a lot. That was a fucking probably a lot of money back then. <clears throat> Before March 6th, which was the day I took psilocybin, one of the psychedelics, which is that's the main, it's the, it's the active compound in mushrooms, magic mushrooms. Uh, before March 6th, which was the day I took psilocybin, one of the psychedelics, I felt something was wrong in my world, but I couldn't label it in any way so as to get hold of it. 
I felt that the theories I was teaching in psychology didn't make it, that the psychologists didn't really have a grasp of the human condition, and that the theories I was teaching, which were theories of achievement and anxiety and defense mechanisms and so on, weren't getting to the crux of the matter. My colleagues and I were nine to five psychologists. We came to work every day and we did our psychology, just like you would do insurance or auto mechanics. And, and then at five, we went home and we were just as neurotic as we were before we went to work. So, I mean, it's, I really, it seemed to me like I'm just, just like every adult. When I was a kid, every adult seemed like they had it together. And now that I'm grown, I realize every single fucking adult's just like lying about everything. Like they're just bullshitting, bro. None of us have any fucking clue what's going on. Even these people in Harvard, like, making all this money. <clears throat> where the fuck up? I just, where am I going? Somehow, it seemed to me, if all this theory were right, it should play more intimately into my own life. I understood the requirement of being objective for a scientist, but... This is the most naive concept in social scientists, as we are finding out. And whatever the psychoanalysis did, and it did many things, I'm sure, I still was a neurotic at the end of those five years of psychoanalysis. Even my therapist thought so. Because when I stopped analysis to go to Harvard, he said, you were too sick to leave analysis. Those were his final words. But because I had been trained in Freudian theory, I knew his game well enough to enjoy this terribly sophisticated competitive relationship with my analyst. And I would say to him, well, in Freud's 1906 paper, don't you recall he said this? And when I'm saying this, you should be interpreting ellipses dot dot dot. <clears throat> For this, I was paying $20 an hour. Damn. That was probably a hell of a lot of money back then, especially because he was mad rich, but I bet there's so many people who would die to pay $20 an hour for therapy. Jesus Christ. Something was wrong. You're telling me, Dr. Richard Alpert? I'm, I'm, you, I'm, anyway, something was wrong. And the something wrong was that I just didn't know. Though I kept feeling all along the way that somebody else must know, even though I didn't. The nature of life was a mystery to me. All the stuff I was teaching was just like a little, just like little molecular bits of stuff, but they didn't add up to a feeling, anything like wisdom. I was just getting more and more knowledgeable and I was getting very good at bouncing three knowledge balls at once. Pause, just kidding, that was childish. I could sit in a doctoral exam, ask very sophisticated, whoops, Let's try that again, ribbity ribbity. I could sit in a doctoral exam, ask very sophisticated questions, and look terribly wise. It was a hustle. Dissatisfaction. Now, my predicament as a social scientist was that I was not basically a scholar. I came out of a Jewish, anxiety-ridden, high-achieving tradition. Though I had been through five years of psychoanalysis, still, every time I lectured, I would get extraordinary diarrhea and tension. Lecturing five days a week made it quite a complex problem to keep my stomach operating, but whatever my motivations, they drove me so hard that despite the fact I was a very mediocre student, 
In fact, I could never get into Harvard, no matter how hard I tried, even using all my father's political influence. I finally found myself on the faculty of one of the good universities. I could study 10 hours and prepare a really good lecture on Freud or human motivation, but it was all as if it were behind a wall. It was theoretical. I theorized this or that. I espoused these ideas, these intellectual concepts, quite apart from my own experiential base. Although I could bring all kinds of emotional zeal to bear on my presentation, there was a lack of validity in my guts about what I was doing. And to my suppressed dismay, I found that the stance was considered acceptable by most of my colleagues who seemed in their own to be, ooh, ribbity ribbity, right? Is that gonna be the catchphrase? It seems natural every time I fuck up to, it's like a, it's like a frog going and rewind, I don't know, anyway. <coughs> Let me clear my throat. Back it up a little bit. And to my suppressed dismay, I found that this stance was considered acceptable by most of my colleagues who seemed, in their attempt to become scientific, to think of personality in terms of variables. Children were nothing but ambulatory variables, and no matter how hard we tried, by the time we got to the legitimacy of highly operationally defined variable, it had lost its gut feeling. So the concepts we were working with were intellectual fun and games, but they weren't affecting my life. Here I was, sitting with the boys. Ah, shout out the boys. Here I was, sitting with the boys of the first team in cognitive psychology. Personality, psych oh, excuse me, that's another thing. Here in the first team of cognitive psychology, personality psychology, developmental psychology. And in the midst of this, I felt here were men and women who themselves were not highly evolved beings. Their own lives were not fulfilled. There was not enough human beauty, human fulfillment, human contentment. I worked hard and the keys to the kingdom were handed to me. I was being promised all of it. I had felt I had got into whatever the inner circle meant. I could be the program chairman for Division 7 of the APA. And I could be on government committees and have grants and travel about and sit on doctorate committees. What is program chairman for Division 7? What is that even? Does that even... That's so irrelevant of a title. So specific. Like, what the fuck is that even? Fuck the APA, bro. Somebody Google that for me. I could travel about and sit on doctorate committees, but there was still that horrible awareness that I didn't know something or something other which made it all fall together. And there was a slight panic in me that I was going to spend the next 40 years not knowing. And that apparently was par for the course. And in the off hours we played Go or poker or cracked old jokes, but the whole thing was too empty. It was not honest enough. And there was some point as a professor at Stanford and Harvard, when I experienced being caught in some kind of a meaningless game in which the students were exquisite at playing the role of students and the faculty were exquisite at playing the role of faculty. I would get up and say what I had read in books and they'd all write it down and give it back as answers on exams, but nothing was happening. I felt as if I were in a soundproof room not enough was happening that mattered, that was real. And as a therapist, I felt caught in the drama of my own theories. 
The research data showed that Rogerian patients ended up saying positive statements and Freudian patients ended up talking about their mother because of the subtle reinforcement clues. It was so obvious. I would sit with my little notebook and when the person would start talking about his mother, I'd make a note and it didn't take long for the patient to realize that he got his note taken and he got his little pellet every time he said certain things and soon he would be Freudianized. In the face of this feeling malaise, I ate more, collected more possessions, collected more appointments and positions and status and more sexual and alcoholic orgies and more wildness in my life. Every time I went to a family gathering, I was the boy who made it. I was a professor at Harvard and everyone stood around in awe and listened to my every word. And all I felt was that horror that I knew inside that I didn't know. Of course it was all such beautiful gentle horror because there was so much reward involved. I had an empire in a place called Center for Research and Personality. A corner office in a building I'd helped to design with two secretaries and many graduate and undergraduate research assistants. I had done all this in about three years. I was really driven. You know, a good Jewish middle-class, upwardly mobile, anxiety-ridden neurotic. I mean, wait, oh, I, I think I skipped a really important word. I was driven, but until you know a good Jewish middle-class, upwardly mobile, anxiety-ridden neurotic, you haven't met a real achiever. My Judaism was a political Judaism. Judaism. Judaism? Judaism. Am I dumb? Judaism. I wonder if those are different things now. How high am I? Judaism. Hmm. Pondering on this longer than I should think. Get back to it. This isn't this isn't interesting. Um My Judaism was a political Judaism. I came out of a tradition of folk religion. The spirit escaped me somehow, although we did all the Yom Kippur and Passover services, but dad was on the board of trustees that hired and fired rabbis, so how could I get into a feeling with a spiritual leader if my father was hiring and firing these guys? Down the hall from my big empire, there was a little office. It had been a closet, and they needed an extra office, so they cleared out the closet, put a desk in there, and... In that closet was Timothy Leary. He had been bicycling around Italy, bouncing checks, and David McClellan found him and brought him back as a creative gift to Western science. Tim and I became drinking buddies together. Then we started to teach courses together, such as the first year of clinical course, Practicum, on existent, ex, ex, oh, I'm dumb, existential transactional behavioral change. I was like, existent, existential? Existential transactional behavioral change. The more time I spent with Tim, the more I realized he had an absolutely extraordinary intellect. He really knew a lot. I found him extremely stimulating and the students found him exciting to be around because of his openness to new ideas and his willingness to take wild risks in thinking. One night when we were drinking together, we plotted a trip across North and South America. And when I said I flew a plane, he said, great we'll fly in your plane. And I said, wonderful. And neglected to tell him that I only had a student license. So I secretly set about getting a license in order to meet him on August 1st in Cuernavaca, 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 Mexico, where he was summering. Where he was, where he was summering. All right, innit? There we would start our journey. 
At that time, I was a consultant for a school mathematics study group, a mathematics program in education at Stanford. I got my license and an airplane on the same day and flew to Mexico the next day in a death-defying leap. Jesus Christ, man. The amount of money this guy must have actually had. Holy cow. When I got there, I found that Timothy had done some other type of flying just about the week before. Frank Barron, who was a psychologist at Cal, an old friend of Tim's, had introduced him to an anthropologist at Mexico. <clears throat> they had come to know about the Tionactal, the flesh of the gods, the magic mushrooms of Mexico, which one obtained from the crazy Juana, a woman up the mountains who ate the mushrooms all the time. Contact was made with her, and the mushrooms were obtained. Tim had eaten nine of these mushrooms, so many male and so many female mushrooms, with a group of others around a swimming pool and had had a profound experience. He said, I learned more in the six or seven hours of this experience than I had learned in all my years as a psychologist. That is a strong statement. When I arrived in Cuernavaca, the mushrooms were all gone, and so was the zeal to go on a trip across South America. Because what was the sense in doing external journeying when obviously what Timothy had been looking for was inside his own head? So I hung out in Tepetzlan. Tepetzlan. I'm going to fuck up a lot of names of countries and people. But just, just forewarning everyone. So I hung out in Tetzpatzlan with David McClelland and his family in Cuernavaca with Tim and his entourage, and then flew back to the United States with Tim and Jackie, his son, and an iguana. <laughs> I'm just reading this. This is some of this. This was all written by him, and this was all written in the early uh, late '60s. So uh, I don't know, man. People are weird. The, the writing's weird, but doing my best. Stay with me. And I went to be a visiting professor at Cal, and Tim went back to Harvard. And by the time I got back, Timothy had a large psychedelic project going. He had consulted with Aldous Huxley, we'll be reading some of his books at some point during the podcast, I'm sure, who was then visiting at MIT, and Aldous and Tim and a number of graduate students had contacted Sandoz, who had produced a synthetic of the magic mushrooms called psilocybin, and they had gotten a test bunch test batch of this and they were busy taking it and administering it. When I got back to Cambridge in the spring, I was invited to share in this bounty. Turning on. The night, the night that was chosen turned out to be the night of the biggest snowstorm of the year and it was to be at Tim's house in Newton, a few blocks from the home of my parents where I had been visiting for dinner. I plowed through the snow, came in, and we sat around the table, and there was about three or four of us, and we passed around the bottle of pills, and I took my 10 milligrams. So they had, like, extracted the active the active compound in magic mushrooms, which was psilocybin. They had extracted that and put it into capsules at this point. Um, that was my preparation and my set and setting. So set and setting has been around since the 60s, by the way. If you guys practice any sort of um, harm reduction, you'll know that. You'll you'll know that phrase. Set and setting is is huge. If you're gonna take psychedelics, those are the two most important things, um, besides your mental health and you know whether or not you have any sort of things like that in your family, especially schizophrenia or bipolar or um, yada yada. Uh, 
excuse me, this is gonna be loud, block your ears. <sighs> I got a compressor on the mic, but <clears throat> I'm not talented with mic stuff, with audio stuff anymore. I haven't, anyway, back, back to the book. All this reading's making my throat clog up too. What the hell, man? I don't be talking like this. So I took my 10 milligrams. That was the preparation and my set and setting. But beyond that, I trusted Timothy. I had seen that Timothy had had a profound experience and he was somebody with an intellect that I understood. I knew that he was not interpersonally destructive. He might be destructive of institutions, but not of individuals. He was a very loving person. We took a very small dosage. Later, we were taking five or ten times as much. And the first part of the experience was comparable to a strong pot high, I would say. A little more dramatic and a little more intense. Clearly, though, something happened. During the first part of this experience with psilocybin, we got into a very low-level, tragic comedy type of thing. Tim's son's dog had been running in the snow, and upon entering the warm kitchen, lay gasping and panting. To our timeless minds, his struggle for breath continued too long, and we thought he was about to expire. What could we do? We could hardly carry the dog through a blizzard in the early Sunday morning to the vet some four miles away, especially since we were all very high and thus not sure about the dog's state. It seemed our concern mounted and the dog passed into a nearby room where it appeared to collapse. We finally decided the only path was to summon 11-year-old Jackie from the late TV show upstairs, since he wasn't under a chemical influence. We would watch his interaction with the dog rather than frighten him with our own suspicions. Bunch of fucking wise guys, bunch of fucking scientists over here, you fucking smart Alex. You're just gonna do an experiment here? You're gonna watch the kid? No, it's actually brilliant. I think it's fucking smart. <clears throat> Jackie was not pleased at being disturbed by us, merely to find out, merely to find out what he was watching on TV. What? That doesn't. Why would you write that? But the problem was very quickly solved by the dog. Upon hearing Jackie's voice, leapt back into life, ready to play. Now, a few hours later, I had gone off by myself to reflect upon these new feelings and senses. A deep calm pervaded my being. The rug crawled and the pictures smiled, all of which delighted me. Then I saw a figure standing about eight feet away, where a moment before there had been none. I peered into the semi-darkness and recognized none other than myself, in cap and gown and hood, as a professor. It was as if that part of me, which was Harvard professor, had separated or disassociated itself from me. How interesting. An external hallucination, I thought. Well, I worked hard to get that status, but I don't really need it. Again, I settled back into the cushions, separate now from my professorness. But at that moment, the figure changed. Again, I leaned forward, straining to see. Ah, me again. But now, it was that aspect of me who was a social cosmopolite. Okay, so that goes too, I thought. Again and again, the figure changed, and I recognized over there all the different aspects I knew to be me, the cellist, the pilot, the lover, so on. 
With each new presentation, I again and again reassured myself that I didn't need that anyway. Then I saw the figure become that in me which was Richard Alpertness. That is, my basic identity that had always been Richard. I associated the name with myself, and my parents called me Richard. Richard, you're a bad boy! So Richard had badness. Then Richard, aren't you beautiful? Then Richard had beauty. Thus, develop all these aspects of myself. Sweat broke out on my forehead. I wasn't at all sure I could do without being Richard Alpert. Did that mean I'd have amnesia? Was that what this drug was going to do to me? Would it be permanent? Should I call Tim? Oh, what the hell. So I'll give up being Richard Alpert. I can always get a new social identity. At least I have my body. But I spoke too soon. As I looked down at my legs for reassurance, I could see nothing below the kneecaps. And slowly, now to my horror, I saw the progressive disappearance of limbs and then torso, until all I could see with my eyes open was the couch upon which I sat. A scream formed in my throat. I felt that I must be dying since there was nothing in my universe that led me to believe in life after leaving the body. Doing without professorness or loveredness, or even Richard Alpertness, okay, but I did need the body. The panic mounted, adrenaline shot through my system. My mouth became dry, but along with this, a voice sounded inside. Inside what? I don't, um, I don't know. An intimate voice asked very quietly and rather jocularly. It seemed to me considering how distraught I was, but... But who's minding the store? I don't know why it was British in my head. Jocular? I'm thinking like jovial? I don't know. I don't even know what jocular actually means. In context, though. But who's minding the stall? Um, and when I could finally focus on the question, I realized that although everything by which I knew myself, even my body, and this life itself was gone, still I was fully aware. Not only that, but this aware, quote-unquote, I, was watching the entire drama, including the panic, with a calm compassion. Instantly, with this recognition, I felt a new kind of calmness, one of a profundity never experienced before. I had just found that, quote-unquote, I, that scanning device, that point, that essence, that place beyond a place where I existed independent of social and physical identity. That which was I was beyond life and death, and something else that I knew, it really knew. It was wise, rather than just knowledgeable. It was a voice inside that spoke the truth. I recognized it. I was one with it and felt as if my entire life of looking to the outside world for reassurance, David Reisman's other directed being was over. I don't know what that means. Who's David Reisman? Did he even mention that guy in this whole fucking thing? Anyway, now I only need to look within to that place where I knew. Fear had turned into exaltation. 
I ran out into the snow laughing as the huge flakes swirled about me. In a moment, the house was lost from view, but it was all right, because inside I knew. Around five in the morning, I walked back, plowing through the snow to my parents' home, and I thought, wouldn't it be nice? I'll shovel the walk. Young tribal buck shovels the walk. So I started to shovel the walk, and my parents' faces appeared in the upstairs window. Come to bed, you idiot. Nobody shovels snow at five in the morning. Then I looked up to them, and I heard the external voice that I had been listening to for 30 years, and inside me something said, It's all right to shovel snow, and it's all right to be happy. I looked up at them, and I laughed, and I did a jig, and then went back to shoveling snow. And they closed the windows, and I looked up, and inside they were smiling too. That was my first experience of giving a contact high. But also, you can see in that moment, in the early morning, the seeds of the breakaway. The seeds of the ability to be able to confront and even disagree with an existing institution and know and trust that inside place that says it's all right. It's something I never could have done without anxiety until that moment, until, until that day. Now, I thought at that moment, wow, I've got it made. I'm just a new, beautiful being. I'm just an inner self. All I'll ever need to do is look inside and I'll know what to do and I can always trust it and I'll be for, and here I'll be forever. But two or three days later, I was walking about the whole thing in the past tense, talking about the whole thing in the past tense. I'm cross-eyed, leave me alone. I was talking about how I experienced this whole thing, quote unquote experienced, because I was back being that anxiety neurotic. I was back being that anxiety neurotic. I guess they're using neurotic as like a noun. lost my place because I was back to being that anxiety neurotic in a slightly milder form but still my old personality was sneaking back up on me well the next day I had to give my lecture in social relations 143 human motivation and it presented me with a bit of a problem because I couldn't find anywhere in the psychology teachings anything about what had happened to me the night before Now, what we did first at Harvard was to tell all of our colleagues about this extraordinary thing that was happening to us. And they all shared our delight, as any scientist would do when a fellow scientist finds a new avenue into the unknown. And so so the first week they listened with delight. And then at the end of the first week, we all went back into our experimental cell, the living room by the fire, and opened the bottle again took some more psilocybin to chart this course further. And the next week, we had shared a deeper experience and we can't, did I just reread the same line again? I keep moving my shit. No, I didn't. He just writes weird. And the next week, we had shared a deeper experience and we came back and we spoke to our colleagues. Now they couldn't hear us quite as well. It wasn't that they were changing, it's that we were. We were developing a language among ourselves. 
If Admiral Byrd and an exploratory party are going deeper and deeper into the polar region, the things they think about and are concerned about are, and are interested in become less and less relevant to somebody living in New York City. This was our situation. We had the choice along the way of stopping to bring everyone else along or going on, but these experiences quickly became indescribable. I had to get to a point with my colleagues when I couldn't explain any further because it came down to, this is in quotes, to him who has had the experience, no explanation is necessary. To him who has not, no explanation is possible. And we would feel this frustration when they'd try to say, it sounds very interesting. We'd say, in order to know, you've got to try it. And they'd say, no, that isn't scientific. It isn't appropriate to test your own product. You do it first on the animals and then on the graduate students, dot, dot, dot. So the next week, we'd sit around on a Saturday night and say, what should we do? And we all knew what we were going to do. We would turn on, in quotes. We were exploring this inner realm of consciousness that we had been theorizing about all these years, and suddenly we were traveling in and through and around it. At the same time, of course, by the second week, it was as though we had just been traveling in Tibet, and now we're back in the school lunchroom. Who did we hang out with? We hang out with the guy with whom we went to Tibet because we shared this very powerful experience. Pretty soon, there were five or six of us, and we were hanging out together, and our colleagues said, Ah, a cult is forming, which was true for us. A cult is a shared system of belief. As to how to work with this stuff, Tim said, We don't know what this is about yet, and there are many models, but it would be best not to impose a model too soon, because a model that exists in the West for these states is pathological. And the model that exists in the primitive cultures is mystical and religious, and it's better if we keep wide open. So we did what would be called a naturalistic study. We gave the psilocybin to maybe 200 people who were physically healthy enough, and we said, you take it under any conditions you want, and all you got to do is answer this questionnaire at the end so we'll know what happened. You do it however you want to. So we gave it to jazz musicians and physicists and philosophers and ministers and junkies and graduate students and social scientists. And at the end, we had these 200 protocols and the first analysis we did showed up very clearly that the reactions were a function of set and setting, a function of their expectations of what was gonna happen and the environment in which they took the drug. If they had it, in a very paranoid environment, and they were expecting to have excitement, they tended to have paranoid excitement. All it did was intensify one's expectations. However, the data also showed something else. Out of these first few hundred, you could see that there was some kind of a stepladder of experience. There was a kind of probabilistic hierarchy of experience so that the most likely experience everybody had was a heightened sensitivity to all their five senses, all of their five senses, and the speeding up of the thought process. 
Then the next type of experience that people would most frequently report was an interpersonal shift of figure and ground where they would look at another person and see the way in which the other person was similar rather than different than themselves. And it was as if the whole Western mind training of individual differences had been made background instead of figure. So that you'd look at another human being and say, here we are. You'd see differences more as clothing rather than core stuff. This was a profound perceptual experience for many people. <laughs> this is a... This is uh, going to date the book. The vocabulary is very dated here. Trigger warning. Uh, it's not really. It's not the. Re it's not even the real N word. I don't know why I'm building it up like it's fucking crazy. I don't know. Joe Biden got in trouble for saying it about the Negro leagues. But anyway, for example, we had a Negro psychiatrist, Madison Presnell, working with us, and I had been trained to be a very liberal person about Negroes, which meant that you didn't have feelings. It was a phony kind of liberal thing. I went out of my way to be liberal. You know, that very self-conscious kind of equality. And Madison and I turned on each other. And I looked at Madison. Oh, that uh, the wrong inflection. And Madison and I turned on each other. And I looked at Madison. And there we were. The same human beings. It was just that he was wearing that skin. Dude, I definitely thought Madison was a girl. Anyway same human beings it was just that he was wearing that skin and i was wearing this skin and it was no more or less than that it was that shirt and this shirt and it had no more relevance than that and i looked at that and suddenly there we were whereas before i had been so busy with my super liberal reaction to the color of skin that i couldn't relax enough to share this unitive place then there was a there was a shit. I about said there is a shit. Don't know why. Then there was a still less frequent type of experience reported. A oneness in which the subjects would say, quote, I remember being in a dark room with another person and one of us spoke and one of us said, who spoke, you or me? It wasn't clear from whose mouth the words came. And then there was a still less frequent experience where one looked at somebody and he started to see the other person as a cellular structure or patterns of energy rather than as a person. And finally, a few subjects, maybe 3% or something like that, transcended all form and saw just pure energy, a homogenous field. It has been called the white light. There was research being done by the group with prisoners to try to change their rate of recidivism. And there were attempts with ministers. A study was, a study was run by Walter Pankey in a group of the, ha ha, hanky panky, in a group of the research community on Good Friday in Boston University Chapel. With 20 ministers, advanced minister training students, 10 receiving psilocybin and 10 receiving a placebo. It was a double-blind study on Good Friday in a chapel. It was absurd because a double-blind study was absurd. Everybody knew something was happening. It was as if you were proving the obvious. Somebody who had taken the placebo, which made their skin crawl, reacted by saying, well, maybe something's happening. And then another minister would stagger into the room and say, I see God, I see God. 
it was all too obvious in a short time who had the psilocybin. Now, my own experiences were horrible and beautiful, and I kept working in different environments and different settings, and whenever anybody that I trusted brought along some new chemical, I would open my mouth and off I'd go. I was interested in doing this exploring. For example, at one point I had been in the meditation room in the community house we had in Newton, and I was for four hours in a state of total homogenous light, bliss, and then I recall starting to come down, and this huge red wave rolled in across the room. It looked like a cross between a William Blake, the picture of the wave, I don't know, that's what it says. I don't know, that's of no relevance to me. Uh, Between a William Blake sketch and a Hieronymus Bosch painting. And it was all my identities, all rolling in over me. I remember holding up my hand and saying, no, no, I don't want to go back. It was like this heavy burden that I was going to take on myself. And I realized that I didn't have the key. I didn't know the magic words like abracadabra or hocus pocus or whatever it was going to be that would stop that wave. And it rolled in over me, and then, oh, here I am again. Richard Albert, what a drag. (sighs) That was a good first episode, I think. A couple hiccups along the way. Had to clear my throat a couple times. Maybe I don't drink seltzers, there's too much sugar. No, sugar and all alcohol, fucking stupid. Why's there gonna be sugar and everything? Should I write a script for an outro? We don't need a script, do we? Well, this is the point where I would try to say something clever to hook you in, but let's be honest, there's probably only three and a half of you listening right now anyways. So, I hope you had a good time. Um, I hope I didn't sound too stupid, and I hope you come back. Uh, check your shelf before you wreck your shelf. I don't know. That's is there. Do I need a sign off? Uh, check your shelf and then check yourself. I don't. This is stupid. All right, y'all be good, man. I love y'all.